Amen. Please be seated. Today we begin what has become known as Holy Week, Palm Sunday. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. I'll read this text, this historical account of the Lord Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the last time before his death. Uh, this will serve as a starting point as we'll look at several scriptures, or I, I will re- read several scriptures to you this morning as we consider this week of Christ's passion. Uh, this week of Christ's passion that the church calendar acknowledges and we celebrate every year that provides an intense summary of all that Christ taught during his earthly ministry, culminating with his sacrificial death and his resurrection. We call this Palm Sunday because of the branches laid down on the road before Christ. Hear his word as I read Matthew 21, verse 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You shall say, the Lord has need of them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, and your word shows us that you have given us your son. Sacrifice is brought on this day that we remember some 2,000 years ago when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Lord, we need this sacrifice. We confess this. Make this new and fresh to us again today as we consider how far-reaching this truth is, how central it is, to our growth and our maturity in you, to bring glory to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem Jerusalem 2,000 years ago marks the most important week of Christ's earthly ministry. Uh, The events of this final week that we contemplate this week are of utmost importance to everything we believe. In fact, we try to structure today as Palm Sunday, a day of focus upon what comes ahead this week. And then, even though church history will celebrate Good Friday and we'll have a service Friday night at 7 o'clock, sort of like our, our Christmas Eve service where we read Scripture and sing a hymn and we hear a meditation and then we partake in the Lord's Supper. Uh, but in reality, the way the dates work out is Jesus enters Jerusalem this day on the Sunday. Thursday, he's actually sacrificed. And Sunday, he rises again. And so we put these events together to contemplate, to remember what Jesus did and how crucial it is. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. But it's important to take one week out of the year because the Bible takes considerable time to focus on the sacrifice of Christ and His resurrection. In fact, 
If you look at Jesus' earthly life, three years are devoted to public ministry. That's 156 weeks of public ministry. From the time he changes water to wine and calls the disciples to the time he rises again. 156 weeks. One week is only one half of one percent of all his public ministry. Yet that one week, his passion week, takes up the largest portion of the Gospels. Think about it. Eight out of 28 chapters in the Gospel of Matthew are devoted to the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's 30%. Six out of 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark are devoted to his final week. That's 37% of Mark's focus. Five and a half chapters out of 24 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, that's 23% of Luke, devoted to his final week. In John, of all the Gospels, 11 chapters out of 21. That's 52% devoted to the final week. Why so much attention on and focus on this final week of Christ's passion? So much focus on his sacrifice. Why? Well, the centrality of the right view of Christ's sacrifice for our sin both indicates and promotes spiritual health and maturity. It's that important. It's centrally important to our faith, to our walk, to our personal growth and our corporate growth as well, spiritually. It's the center. It's not Christianity if it's not about the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Let's consider that from Scripture for a moment uh, when we realize as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, that's the sacrifice for us, for you, being brought for our sins. We need Christ's sacrifice because of our sins. Let's consider that for a moment. Uh, the sacrifice in the Old Testament was an offering or gift given to God to remove the guilt of sin. It was always temporary, forecasting Christ's coming, but it is pervasive. You cannot read the Bible without seeing the theme of sacrifice coming through often and always. Integrated throughout each book is this picture of what Christ would do and it would be understood by any believer in any time that it would require something costly to pay for sins, personal and corporate. Sacrifice is integral to all that we are as a Christian, as a believer, a follower of God through Christ. Consider the scripture, how the theme of sacrifice is throughout. Right in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, you have this picture of paradise as God creates man and woman plus Place is the most beautiful place on earth to tend and keep it. Open relationship with God. Communication is clear. Communion is perfect. And then sin enters in because of man. And a wall of dividing goes up between man and God. No way that wall can come down without sacrifice. In fact, the word of the gospel, the good news that's given in Genesis 3.15, is that the seed of the woman that would come from Eve, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent and undo this wall. The, the problem is, however that that seed of the woman who is Christ would have his heel bruised. He would be sacrificed. So already in Genesis 3, you have the theme of sacrifice. And then right after, in verse 21 of chapter 3, you have God sacrificing animals in order to cover the nakedness of the fallen man and fallen woman. Sacrifice already. Then you come not even a little bit further, and who brings sacrifices to God? Chapter 4. Cain and Abel. It's, it's understood in fallen man that we cannot win ourselves to God by our righteousness. So sacrifice must happen. God can't just overlook it. He's holy. He would no longer be God if he overlooked unholiness or fellowship with unholiness. So he has to make it holy, and sacrifice is the only thing that will acquire this. 
Genesis continues, though. You come to the time of Noah on the ark, and he gets off the ark. What's the first thing Noah does? I mean, I know there's a lot of things I do after being at sea for that long. But he gets off and kills, by sacrifice, dozens of animals. Now, think about this for a moment. He's on an ark with the only land animals that are in existence at this point. The sea creatures are there, of course. He gets off, and he kills dozens, probably, Now, he might want to hold off, don't you think? I mean, there's not a lot of animals around at this point, and he's sacrificing them. But this is a picture of dependence that we have when we sacrifice on God. That's what sacrifice reminds us of, a dependence we have to have on God. So even though there's only an ark full of animals to populate the whole earth, this act of sacrifice that Noah does points to the fact that only God can save, only God can provide, only God can give. So the theme of sacrifice, we're only up to chapter 8 in Genesis, is throughout. Then we come to Abraham. Chapter 12, God calls Abraham. He builds an altar. For what? Sacrifice. Chapter 13, he uh, recommits in this covenant God does to Abraham. And what does Abraham do in another city? Builds another altar for a sacrifice. And then what's the ultimate picture? God calls Abraham to do what? In his old age, he gives him this son. He calls laughter, Isaac. It's funny that an old guy can have a kid like this. Yet, what does God call him to do? To sacrifice his only son. To bring Isaac to a mountain. To kill him. And Abraham obeys to the point where he's rearing back with the knife. And the angel of the Lord stops Abraham. And instead, a scapegoat is given. And a goat is killed in place of his son. And this picture is the ultimate giving of God the Father giving his son for us. And this picture of sacrifice could not be more vivid to people. As Abraham is given faithfulness to do what he was told to do. God stays his hand picture of sacrifice is clear and we're only up to the middle part of genesis if you would walk through the totality of the old testament you would see when the church is at its strongest it's when the ministry of the sacrifice is clearest and most faithful in its administration the opposite is true when they're not properly following god's commands for the sacrifice they're weak Why? Because their focus is no longer on their need for sacrifice, but it's on them. This has never changed. It's still the same today. We come to the time of Moses, after the time of Abraham, and he's given a varied and complex system of sacrifices on Mount Sinai. Before he gets to Sinai, the Passover happens. And what goes on there? God sends all these plagues to relieve Israel and the the stress that Egypt's putting upon them so that Egypt would let them go. And the final culmination of it is the killing of the firstborn, that every firstborn would be killed unless the blood of the lamb is put on the post of the house. Sacrifice needed to give redemption. Throughout the scriptures, we have this picture. And then at Sinai, we have instituted the Day of Atonement with the tabernacle, then the temple, and the idea that every year the priests would bring in this perfect sacrifice to represent the sins of the people, and a scapegoat would be sent out. Sacrifice. In its most general sense, is throughout, but then it gets personal when the prophet Isaiah says, in a very difficult time in the life of the church, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about the sacrifice and our need thereof. Isaiah 53, 5, But he... Now he's personal. Was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the sacrifice. The iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's Christ the sacrifice forecasted many centuries before Palm Sunday, the first. Later in Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The Lord Jesus is in fact that sacrifice so vividly forecasted throughout the Old Testament era. In fact, it's what causes John the Baptist when he sees Jesus. Now remember, John and Jesus are cousins. When he sees Jesus, he doesn't say, Hey, cuz. He says, Hey, we have the same moms. No, this kind of wild Old Testament throwback, John looks across at Jesus and says, The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. That's what he sees when he sees Jesus. That's what we should see when we see Christ. He's not just some fluffy teacher. He's not just some guy that's a guru. He's not just some person everyone could say, and look, let's emulate him. He's a great example. No, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who he is. No one else is. This is why Paul, after looking back at Jesus' death, and Paul, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, sees all of this vivid imagery come into light now, and as he writes to the Corinthians, who are struggling with division and strife and all manner of sin, he says to them, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Has power for change. Has power for worship. We need Christ's sacrifice because of our sins. And then the author of Hebrews, in the most important book in the New Testament, showing us this transition of the fulfillment of this picture the Old Testament gives us a sacrifice. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 7, He has no need, that is Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, capital S, son, who has been made perfect forever. And later, the same author writes, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And the only ones eagerly awaiting are the ones who have had that sacrifice made for them. The sacrifice. Hey, brothers, sisters, friends, do you acknowledge God to be holy? Do you believe he's holy? Do you believe that you're sinful? I know I am. How can I be related with God if I'm very honest? There's only one way. In my sinful condition, I have to have a sacrifice for me that makes fellowship with God a reality, a possibility. And it happens in Christ. When he comes and takes down the dividing wall of separation by his sacrifice, and now I have relationship with God, and I can be in right communion with him. Upon him, my Lord Jesus, was the chastisement that brought me peace with God. By Jesus' stripes, I've been healed. You've been healed. This is the great picture we have in Revelation when there's this audience gathered to see 
who is worthy to gain fellowship with God, essentially. And no one can do it. No one can bring the worthiness necessary. And there's a sense of rhetorical despair in the text until the Lamb stands. Listen to what it says in Revelation 5. Who is worthy to take up and open the scroll and break its seals? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ the sacrifice. We need the sacrifice for our sins. What does it have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, it has everything to do with it. It was as the Jewish people on that Palm Sunday the first brought their lambs to Jerusalem for Passover that Jesus entered Jerusalem himself. How many lambs were involved? A great number. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that one year when a census was taken of the lambs slain for Passover, the figure was 256,500. James Boyce says in his commentary about this Passover, with those numbers being this large, lambs must have been driven up to Jerusalem throughout the entire day. Consequently, when Jesus entered the city, he must have been surrounded by lambs, he being the greatest lamb of all. And I add this, that you had to bring the lambs three days before Passover because if they were sick, you could not use them for the sacrifice. So it was on this exact day, three days before the Passover on Thursday, when the lambs would be slain, that all the lambs would be driven into Jerusalem. And Boyce brings this out wonderfully, and he says further, Four days later, at the very time the lambs were killed, Jesus himself was killed, thereby becoming the true Passover lamb, on the basis of whose shed blood the angel of spiritual death continues to pass over those who trust in Christ. So, if your trust is in Christ alone, the angel of spiritual death passes over you, and you have spiritual life in Christ, because your sacrifice has been made for you, and it's totally sufficient. We need Christ's sacrifice because of our sin, and we have it by faith in him and his work. There's two more important applications or realities that come from Christ, our sacrifice, and him entering Jerusalem, the sacrifice being brought. First, the centrality of Christ's sacrifice is always an indicator of spiritual health, both as an individual and as a church. The centrality of his sacrifice. Now let me say something very clear about the sacrifice. I don't mean we stop with the death of Christ. I mean that the death of Christ we know to be accepted by God and therefore valid for our fellowship with God because God raised him again from the dead. So when I talk about the sacrifice of Christ being central and a key indicator of our spiritual health, I mean the complex of his death his burial and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So when we speak as Christians of his sacrifice, we mean more than just the act on the cross. 
It's the authentication of that act by God raising him again from the dead. Many people died for causes. Only one has been raised again and defeated the very thing that we're so scared of, death. So, the centrality of Christ's sacrifice is always an indicator of spiritual death. We see this uh, spiritual health in individuals and corporate uh, churches as well. Uh, how an individual views and sees and understands what Jesus has done for him or her is so crucial to your growth and to your development. How a church accents what Christ has done, preaches, teaches, shows forth what Christ has done, that will indicate the health of that church. It always has been that way. If you look at the history of Israel, you'll see in their moments of obedience and faithfulness to the sacrificial system, that is where they are doing the best. But there are also epics that are very clear where the sacrifices stop. And I want to be clear, it's not easy to do sacrifices. It's much better to be on this side of the cross than the other side. Now, we could still neglect the sacrifice. We'll think of that in a moment, but think of how hard it was to do sacrifices. You had to raise animals. Sometimes you were in captivity or oppressed by another nation, and you had to somehow raise animals, and you maybe didn't have access to the temple where these had to be performed, these sacrifices. So it was somewhat easy in difficult times to not carry out what God had told them to carry out. Many excuses could come in to why they stopped practicing the sacrifices. But when the sacrificial system was being observed faithfully, it indicated a real health among God's people. It was always a sign of revival when the sacrifices were started up again. The sacrificial system was being observed unfaithfully. It indicated spiritual sickness on the part of God's people. Let me give you one example. The prophet Malachi. Towards the end of the Old Testament, they've come back from exile, and the prophet is witnessing a reestablished sacrificial system. They're using the temple again. You'd think everything would be going really well. But listen to what Malachi says as he confronts the leaders of Israel, the priests who are responsible for being sure the sacrifices are happening. Listen to what Malachi says. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? This is God speaking to Israel. And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Priests don't understand. What is he talking about? We're doing our job. We're going through the motions. God says, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil, God says? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept what you give or show you favor? What he's saying is, Israel, who's now back in their land, has their temple and has opportunity to give sacrifices again, they're still under the thumb of the foreign governor. And God says, you're bringing me lame and blind sacrifices, animals. You wouldn't even do that for your pagan governor. What had happened to their hearts is that they had lost connection with how badly they needed a perfect sacrifice. By giving blind and lame sacrifices, they were minimizing how bad their sin was, that they didn't need to bring a perfect sacrifice. So God strikes at the heart of this, even though... Even though they are going through the motions, he's saying that your heart's far from me. I know so because the way you view that sacrifice. I say this only to say it could be easy for anybody to go through the motions and not consider what it is that Christ has done for us. 
We can have the means of grace come forward as it's preached and as we practice in the Lord's Supper. But it's possible for our hearts to be far from Him. And we see it all over Christendom where uh, ceremonies are gone through, actions are taken, and there's, there's no real vital link to the fact that we personally have to have Christ's blood applied to us by faith. They're offering the non-sacrificial. And one commentator described what was happening in Malachi's day so wonderfully when he says, what was taking place was the ultimate contradiction in worship. Israel was offering non-sacrificial sacrifices. They were offering to God as sacrifices the things which they did not want themselves. Sacrifices, the giving up of something that we genuinely value in order to express devotion and appreciation for God. But sacrificing of diseased animals was like offering someone as a birthday present the contents of our garbage pails. They're missing the points of the sacrifices. The sacrifice represents Christ, and it should be done at the highest honor possible, the perfect sacrifice. And as a way of encouragement, I remind you that the Lord God has given us, His church, and you, brothers and sisters, means of grace. He's given us the word preached, which gives constant testimony to the cross, to His sacrifice. And we have the Lord's Supper on a regular basis to physically taste and feel and touch the benefits of what God has done in the sacrifice for us. The centrality of Christ's sacrifice in everything we say and do is always an indicator of spiritual health. For an individual, rightly thinking about your need for Christ's sacrifice will guard you from justifying particular sins. Corporately, we have to actively study and meditate upon Christ's work for us. Our communion, even in the liturgy, the assurance of pardon comes at a time after we've confessed our sins. We never stay in our sins. We confess them and hear grace. We hear of the sacrifice that assures us of pardon. We sing hymns that glorify the sacrifice Christ. We have Holy Week. Every week should be a contemplation of these things, but it's an important time in the life of the church, this week of Easter. Finally, I would point out, concerning Palm Sunday and this bringing of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the centrality of Christ's sacrifice will very personally and corporately, again, promote spiritual maturity in you. It's the thing that does the work to make you grow, to make you more like Him. Why? Well, several reasons why the sacrifice of Christ promotes spiritual growth. First, focus on Christ's sacrifice reminds us of the only one who could make a worthy sacrifice, and it causes us to worship Him. The only one who's able to save us by His merit. Uh, connected with that, secondly, I would also say that Christ's sacrifice puts my selfish pride off. It works true humility in me. When I see Christ, what He does for me, what He has done for me, it reminds me of how heinous my sin is. We, we clean that up today. We don't like to show that. Uh, we do it for entertainment, all right, but when we talk about reality and what it took to pay for my sins, uh, we, we avoid that talk, that bloody talk. But the fact is, that image of Christ on the cross is the very thing that reminds me of how desperately wicked and heinous my sins are. And we're in this together. It does no good, and it's actually lying and deceiving to say to you, we're really not that bad. That's the big lie. The people aren't really that bad. Look at the cross. That's how bad people are. We've got quite a week. Three massacres. 
in one week in our country, in our country. A missile over the top of Japan. Okay, what does it take for us to see the truth that we are not just not that bad, we're almost as bad as we can be. Not quite, almost though. And the sacrifice had to be bloody, had to be what it was. And that humbles me, and it's from a place of humility that God actually exalts us. Christ's sacrifice promotes and deepens my love for Jesus when I think of what he did by his stripes, I am healed. You know, there is nothing more tragic and discouraging than to see an older pastor stop preaching the cross. Please, pull me out of it when that happens, if it happens. God help us that it doesn't. It's the center of everything that's valuable for eternity. The cross. Him and Him crucified. How will the centrality of Christ's sacrifice promote spiritual maturity? Well, I'll say this, that the cross itself has a dynamic power that never stops. It's a continual effect that it has upon God's people to sanctify us. The cross is not static. It is not relegated to an act in history. It's a dynamic work that Christ has done that continually affects us. And John, in essence, is saying in 1 John that if we walk in the light, he says, and he is the light, Christ, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us, and he writes it in the present sense, sense, cleanses us from all sin. This is this ongoing action. It continues to work. A recent hymn or song was written by Keith Getty that captures the power of the cross. Listen to what he says. To see the pain written on your face. He's talking of Jesus. Bearing that awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed. The particulars even, he's pointing out. Crowning your blood-stained brown. To see my name written in the wounds. For through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand now forgiven at the cross. How should we respond to Christ's sacrifice for us? Paul answers very clearly in Romans 12, by sacrificing. But thankfully, it's not the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore, everything that happened in chapter 1 through 11 of Romans, which is the sacrifice, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, by the grace of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And please hear, brothers and sisters, friends, what it says. It does not say, so that you might be rightly related with God, make yourself a living sacrifice. It doesn't say that. It says, therefore, in light of the sacrifice, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We can because he did. It means everything. The great missionary to Africa, David Livingstone, of Dr. Livingstone, I presume, fame, went to Africa when few people were going there to bring the gospel. He died of malaria and dysentery, a very painful death. Listen to what he said shortly before his death. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. 
Can that be called a sacrifice, Livingstone asks, which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny? It is emphatically no sacrifice, Livingstone says. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common conveniences of this life. These all make us pause and they cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing compared with the glory which shall later be revealed in and through us. I never made a sacrifice, Livingstone said. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Palm Sunday is the sacrifice being brought for us. Let's pray. Lord God, who can estimate the value of your gift when you gave to us your only begotten son? It is something unspeakable and incomprehensible. It passes our understanding. Bishop Ryle said it well. Two things there are which man has no arithmetic to reckon and no line to measure. One of these things is the extent of that man's loss who loses his own soul. The other is the extent of God's gift when he gave Christ to sinners. Sin must indeed be exceedingly sinful when the Father must needs give his only Son to be the sinner's friend. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let us turn in our hymnals to 311 as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. We'll sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Hail to the Lord's Anointed. <laughs> 